20 years ago, all of the data in an organization could fit inside of relational databases. Imagine a company like Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble is a consumer packaged goods company with hundreds of business sectors. Shaving products, toothpaste, shampoo, laundry detergent. 20 years ago, if the chief financial officer of Procter & Gamble wanted to answer a question about the revenue projections within the enterprise, that CFO would ask a VP to find the answer. The VP would contact the business analysts in all of the different departments within Procter & Gamble. And those business analysts would work with database administrators to answer questions for their business sector. You'd get the report for the shaving products, the report for the toothpaste, the report from the shampoo people. You could aggregate all those reports together. In that world, it might have taken weeks or months for the CFO to get the answer about revenue projections. Today, data engineering has improved dramatically. Datasets within an enterprise are updated more rapidly. The tooling has advanced thanks to the Hadoop project, leading to a wide range of open source projects that feed into one another. But data problems across an enterprise still exist. Business analysts, data scientists, and data engineers struggle to communicate with each other. The CFO still can't get a question about revenue projections answered instantly. Instead of instant answers, we live in a world of friction and batch processing and monthly reports. And this is actually not true just of old enterprises like Procter & Gamble or Coca-Cola. It's true of newer startups like Uber, Airbnb, and Netflix. It seems that no amount of engineers and financial windfall can completely cure the frictions of the modern data platform. Tomer Sharan started Dremio to address the long-lived problems of data management, data access, and data governance within an enterprise. Dremio connects databases, storage systems, and business intelligence tools together and uses intelligent caching to make commonly used queries within an organization more readily accessible. Dremio is an ambitious project that spent several years in stealth before launching. In today's episode, Tomer gives a history of data engineering and provides his perspective on how the data problems within an organization can be diminished. Full disclosure, Dremio is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Tomer Sharan, you are the CEO at Dremio. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. I want to go through a brief history of data engineering with you because I think you know as much about it as many other people and well not many other people actually you you have probably a more authoritative understanding of data engineering than most people 20 years ago we didn't really have many tools for data engineering things were more standardized in terms of the people who were using databases or the other bi tools that might have been available 20 years ago and we didn't have that term data engineering. So if we're talking about companies in the late 90s, what were the closest analogs to data engineering back then? Yeah, I would say that, you know, we've had databases now for, for a while, but the need to move data around and the need to tune those databases and make them work, uh, that responsibility fell uh, kind of on the shoulders of database administrators, so, so DBAs, as well as uh, ETL engineers. So we had... Uh, you know, we started to see products like uh, Informatica that would allow people to, in a more kind of off-the-shelf way, 
move and transform data. And so those those are basically ETL engineers. And a lot of a lot of these things were done through scripting and, and things like that as well. The closest thing to data engineering was probably data analysis. You had a relational database, you had a DBA that administered it, the database administrator. If I'm the CFO of a large enterprise company back in those days, like 20 years ago, let's say let's say Coca-Cola. I'm the CFO. I decide I want some aggregation of data and it's all in a database. How did that query get carried out? Yeah, so in that time frame, basically, you'd have the, the data in, in one database or a data warehouse. And as a CFO, you're a, a, you're a very non-technical person, typically, and your expectation is that somebody is creating a report for you. So you're actually not interacting directly with the data. So, you know, you'd typically go to somebody in IT and maybe submit some requirements, explain to them what it, what it is that you want the report or the dashboard to look like. And they'd go do the engineering work to to make that happen. They'd you know they'd connect a a business intelligence tool to that database and then produce that that report. And so it'd be a very uh, simple kind of on the back end because typically at the time you know data wasn't that big. It was all in one place, and you know with the combination of one BI tool and one database, you you pretty much could solve that problem. Uh, although you you had to be technical because of the nature of the tools at the time. As we move along the timeline. 10 years ago, Hadoop was born and in its infancy. And if we fast forward from that point in time when the CFO of Coca-Cola asks for a report and it's pretty straightforward process towards 10 years later where Hadoop comes out, how had the data engineering world advanced from the late 90s to the Hadoop timeframe? Had, had time just stood still between the that relational database era and the point at which Hadoop started to make data engineering more of a, a widespread challenge? Well, I'd say even before, before kind of the rise of, of Hadoop and, and the data lake, uh, we had data warehouses, right? So we had companies, uh, technologies like uh, Teradata and, of course, Oracle and Microsoft, etc., where companies that had data in lots of different places would try to consolidate that data into a single data warehouse. And those were very complex projects because a lot of upfront kind of data modeling and preparation of the data had to take place. And you had to kind of figure out what exactly people were going to ask and uh, people would build OLAP cubes and, and so forth. And so that's one thing that was, was going on even before Hadoop is kind of the rise of the data warehouse as a centralized uh, relational repository of data. And a lot of effort went into uh, creating those things and, and keeping them uh, up to date, many millions of dollars typically for typical enterprise uh, but in parallel to that, also, we had the, the rise of much nicer tools from a BI standpoint. So, for example, technologies like Tableau, where you didn't need to be as uh, uh, technical to, to actually create visualizations, right? You know, we started talking about Agile BI and self-service BI and, and, and making that easier. And then Hadoop came along and originally developed at Google and later kind of as an open source project at Yahoo and then commercialized by, by various different uh, Hadoop vendors. And the goal there was to uh, really solve some of the problems that existed in the world of, of data warehousing, uh, where it was just too hard to get data into those platforms, right? With the data warehouse, you had to kind of figure out schemas and models and, and spend tons of time before you could even ingest a single row of data into the system. Whereas the, the Hadoop environments came along and made it easier to 
and get data into the platform and kind of centralize it in one place. At least that was the hypothesis. Hadoop got stable around 2011. You were at MapR around that time in the early days. MapR, I think 2009 through 2015. In that early point in time of, of Hadoop's life, the 2009, 2010, 2011, when you're working with those enterprises that were starting to adopt Hadoop, what did their infrastructure look like? Yeah, I actually remember my first my first meeting with LinkedIn about Hadoop back in 2009. I think they, they had a 20-node Hadoop cluster in the basement. They also had a 20-node, uh, uh, it was called Aster Data. It doesn't exist anymore, but uh, kind of a, an MPP database as well. You know, fast forward a few years later, they were uh, running thousands of nodes uh, of that system of, of, uh, of Hadoop. But companies, you know, they had data in lots of different places, uh, data that was in relational databases, data that was in uh, non-relational databases like MongoDB and Elasticsearch and, and so forth. And, you know, they started to stand up these Hadoop clusters running on potentially hundreds of servers, uh, sometimes even more, and creating that kind of single repository where they could load data into that system. So, yeah, I was at MapBar from uh, 2009, 2015, one of the first employees there. And it was a, a great time as we were kind of enabling all these enterprises to you know, for the first time, be able to kind of bring together data from different sources and into one place and be able to do something about that data. How did the the Hadoop adoption change those enterprises? Like if I'm Coca-Cola back in 2009, 2010, 2011, I decide I want the big data. How does that change how I look at my infrastructure? You know, it went from, uh, at least the goal was to go from a world of lots of silos of data and lots of work to kind of bring that data into one place uh, into having a kind of a centralized uh, data lake where you can throw in lots of data running on commodity servers. So you didn't have to run on you know, high-end specialized uh, hardware either or, uh, or kind of MPP appliances. You could just run on commodity hardware that you would buy from companies like Dell and HP and, and Cisco and so forth. And, and it was really a, low, a very low-cost way of storing large volumes of data. That was kind of the significant innovation that came from that uh, that technology. I think to some extent, the silos of data access patterns and data technologies maybe got simplified, but there are still silos. And the silos today, maybe you could describe them through the lens of the different roles of people who are interfacing with the data and the data infrastructure in different ways. You've got the data scientist, You've got the business analyst. You've got the data engineer. Describe the different roles, the different silos that might exist in a data-focused enterprise today. Yeah, I think from a from a person personnel standpoint, uh, you have different roles. So you have the kind of the data engineers who are responsible for kind of processing the data, uh, cleaning it up, making it available, and so forth. Uh, you have the data scientists who are kind of the more technical consumers of data. So when we talk about data consumers, we think of kind of two broad classes of users, one being the business analysts and the other being the data scientist. And so a business analyst is typically using BI tools and kind of um, drag and drop tools like uh, Tableau and Looker, Power BI from Microsoft and, and Click and MicroStrategy and so forth. And then you have the uh, the data scientists who are often using kind of more advanced tools, and, and that could be uh, things in the Python ecosystem, uh, things uh, like uh, R, 
and so forth. And, and that goes all the way up to kind of more machine learning and AI, but everything kind of on that spectrum between uh, kind of handwriting uh, complex SQL queries to uh, doing more advanced things. Today, the Coca-Cola CFO asks a business analyst, maybe a data scientist, a question, something relating to revenue probably. How long does that question take to answer? And what are the different points along the data access and data aggregation question into the result that gets received by the Coca-Cola CFO? Yeah, I'd say, unfortunately, the the theory of having all the data in one place remained very much a, something theoretical that we, we, as an industry, were not able to accomplish, right? And even with the uh, kind of the, the rise of the data lake, whether it's uh, whether it's the on-prem data lake with, with Hadoop or now things like S3 or Azure Data Lake Store, you know, there it, it's still very much a complex data infrastructure landscape. And so for most companies, they they might have that raw data sitting in a data lake, but then, you know, they, in order to get the performance that they want, they end up having to extract some of that into a data warehouse or an MPP database. And then, you know, that's not fast enough. So they end up creating aggregation, pre-aggregating the data in in aggregation tables, or maybe they they end up uh, creating cubes so they can support faster analysis. And then the golden, the, just the raw data as is, is not uh, suitable for kind of a data consumer for an analyst. So somebody has to go and pre-process that data and so forth. And, you know, you end up having so many different copies of data and so much work that goes on uh, for everything that you want to do. And so when that business analyst who's serving the the CFO of, uh, uh, of the company wants to do something, unless it's something that they've already done before, uh, chances are they have to go to somebody in IT you know, like a data engineer and file a ticket, wait for their ticket to get prioritized. The data engineer then has to go, you know, bring together the data and maybe run the queries for them and basically do a bunch of work just for that one simple kind of request that came down from from the CFO or maybe from just the, the business analyst or the product manager. So it's a, it's a very complex process, very long, often takes weeks and sometimes more uh, for most companies. All those sources of delay that can occur in that significant timeline between the Coca-Cola CFO having a question and that question being answered, you saw these when you were at MapR. You saw these, and they were part of the impetus for starting Dremio. When you left MapR to start Dremio, what were the specific problems in data engineering that you thought you might be able to solve? Yeah, we basically looked at the life of a data engineer and what we saw was that they were they were not happy, they were overloaded, and they were constantly dealing with very tactical reactive work. So it was these types of requests from you know data consumers and, and others that were asking them, hey, can you run this query for me? Can you do this for me? Can you get this for me? And that meant that they were constantly busy, you know, kind of so, doing these support tickets rather than doing more strategic work. And then at a, at a higher level, the companies were just unable to find enough data engineering talent as well. And so... You know, I recently had dinner with the heads of data from some of the largest uh, kind of unicorn type companies in, in the Bay Area. And what they were saying is that today, because of the complexity of, of the kind of data infrastructure and the volume of data, uh, you kind of need a data engineer for every analyst that you have uh, to be successful. And, and nobody can even get close to that kind of a ratio in terms of uh, finding the talent. So that made us realize that the solution had to be in technology. There had to be a better way of doing things 
than having this very IT kind of engineering driven involvement for every single thing that people want to do with with data. The unicorn companies, those are not as old as Coca-Cola. So the these data problems, these don't just exist at legacy, well I don't want to call Coca-Cola legacy, but it's an older company. They don't just exist at older enterprises. They also exist at a company like I don't know. I, I'm going to throw a name out there. I have no idea if this company was at the meeting, but like an Airbnb, where it's like a big company, but it's still kind of startupy, right? And and I think that that's what makes this even more significant, right? So for these companies, maybe they can get to a data engineer for every two consumers of data, but when you get into the more traditional enterprise, those ratios can be you know ten to one or a hundred to one, and not only that, but their infrastructure. There's so much legacy from you know just years of operating and, and, and acquisitions and, and things like that that make the problem even worse. So in some cases, you know, people want to ask a question about data and it takes months in order for them to be successful at doing that. And it takes a lot of engineering involvement for any kind of new question. And that's a big inhibitor for these companies who all realize that they have to be data-driven, right? They're being disrupted by the likes of Google and Amazon and, and, and so forth. Uh, but they can't be data-driven because people can't access data and they can't take advantage of data. And in most cases, when something takes you a week or a month, you give up. You just don't do it, right? You kind of move on. And so that's a, a big problem, and that's something that we're uh, trying to solve here. And you could solve this problem in different ways at different levels of the stack. So Looker, for example, I remember talking to somebody about Looker. They were asserting that Looker approaches this the same problem of the different roles and the long lead time from question to answer, but it solves it, I think, more at the BI level. I think of Dremio as, I guess, but beneath the BI level or perhaps also encompassing the BI level, but sort of taking a more full stack approach. Where, where would you describe Dremio as sitting in the stack of different tools that are because like the business analyst is working with a bi tool the data engineer is working with the data infrastructure the data scientist is interfacing i don't know more in the middle or along the entire surface of everything where in the stack is is dremio encompassing yeah it's a good question so we uh, we actually don't get involved in the visualization layer we leave that to companies like looker and tableau that uh, and, and microsoft power bi which which do a great job there and those companies have actually focused on making the visualization layer self-service, right? So you don't need kind of somebody technical to, you know, create the visualization or, or do the report for you. The problem that we're solving is that everything underneath that layer, which today encompasses a lot of ETL and, and kind of manual data engineering and cobbling together lots of different solutions, that layer is very much uh, not self-service. And so we're uh, very focused on making the rest of the data stack uh, self-service just like you know, companies like Tableau and Looker and Microsoft Power BI make the visualization layer self-service. Okay, the interaction between data scientists and data engineers and business analysts, what should that interaction be like? That's a great question. You know, it's, it's exactly the, the kind of things that we focus on, right? Because we've built a kind of an open source platform that uh, facilitates that interaction, right? So it's not this uh, file a ticket, wait, you know, three weeks for, to get something. It's, uh, we believe that, uh, you know, data engineering should be responsible for, you know, doing that kind of initial maybe collection and, and processing of data into 
some kind of a state where it's it's use, it's broadly useful to to the general audience of data consumers within the company. But then the challenge is every data consumer, you know, every business analyst or data scientist uh, wants things a little bit different, right? They don't, they, they want the, it could be as simple as the columns named differently, or they want some, you know, data set in the organization joined with their own uh, custom spreadsheet. So all those kinds of things, we call that the last mile, similar to kind of the last mile in logistics or, or, or in the telco world where that's the hardest problem. We want to solve the last mile problem, and we want to make it so that the data engineers don't have to get involved in the last mile because that's so specialized and customized to each individual user that it just bogs them down if they have to serve each of those users. So we think that data engineers, they should worry about kind of the long haul, the the, the more kind of standardized processing of the data and infrastructure in the company. We want to provide technology that makes the data consumer much more self-sufficient so they're not constantly bothering the, the data engineer with individual kind of tasks. And give a little bit more description for the frictions that exist within these specific roles and between these specific roles, like problems that you need to be able to solve. Yeah, let's look at a, at a few examples. So one simple example is I'm a, let's say I'm a business analyst, you know, or a product manager, I want to do something with data. And maybe that data is in two different places today. Okay, two different systems. And so today, the without Dremio, the solution is I go to, I file a ticket within the kind of support portal that I have in the company, and at some point that gets prioritized, and somebody from data engineering can can start a project to integrate those two sources, maybe load them into a centralized kind of data warehouse or an S3 bucket or something like that. And so that's one example of something that we'd like to make it so that the data engineer doesn't have to get involved. Another example is maybe I'm a, as a business analyst, I'm, I'm doing some analysis in, you know, Tableau or Looker or something like that, uh, or maybe using Python. Uh, the queries are just too slow. I'm not getting the performance that I want. Uh, and so again, that today uh, without Dremio would become a data engineering task. You know, somebody would have to pre-aggregate the data, you know, maybe sessionize it, maybe aggregate it by city or something like that so that I can get a faster response time. Or maybe they'd have to load it into a uh, in-memory database like HANA. So there's a lot of work that would have to happen so that I could get the performance that I need in order to be able to interact with that data. So again, that becomes a multi-week project to move the data into a faster source or to process the data in a specific way that would make queries go faster. But then, you know, chances are I'm then going to want to do something different with that data. And so that processing that had taken place is not no longer helping me get the performance. So, you know, something needs to be adjusted or, you know, a cube has to get rebuilt. So it's just so much back and forth every time, you know, I'm not getting the performance that I want or I don't have access to the data that I need. When you started working on Dremio, how did you think about addressing those frictions more specifically at, at an engineering level what did you think that you could build to be able to address those frictions yeah so we envisioned uh, a, a platform we now call it a, a data as a service platform because we see that companies across every vertical across every industry uh, want to deliver data as a service internally within the organizations and that platform we that, that we envisioned would be something that could connect to any data source that the company has. And so we started kind of focusing on the, the data lakes that people had already built, as well as some of the kind of relational and non-relational databases. And then something that would connect, uh, would allow them to continue to use the existing BI tools and data science applications that they have, you know, things like Pandas and, and you know, Tableau and Power BI and so forth. And really at the, at the 
core of the system is this idea that the only way to solve this problem is to kind of create this abstraction layer, which allows the consumers of data within a company uh, to be able to interact with data and explore data and analyze data through kind of an abstraction layer so that they can they can do data prep, they can join things, but do all of that without creating copies of data. So do it all in kind of a virtualized way. And then the system would provide kind of the execution and query acceleration and caching capabilities that were needed to make things go fast, irrespective of what was done at that at the abstract level. And so that's really what we what we built. We, if you think about it from the user interface standpoint, it looks a lot like a Google Docs, uh, you know, except instead of Docs, it's data sets. And so users can create new data sets. Uh, they can uh, we call them virtual data sets. They can then share them with their colleagues who can build on top of that. Uh, and the company has the ability to see kind of that data lineage and what, what's been built and what's dependent on what. And all that is basically at zero cost because it's all virtual data sets. They're not creating uh, copies of data. Right. Like last time we spoke about those virtual data sets and virtual data sets are the data sets that I want Dremio to be aware of across my organization, whether it's MySQL or Elasticsearch or HDFS. And then you have reflections, and reflections are the the joins or the other expensive queries. You could join a, a MySQL data from MySQL with Elasticsearch, for example, and then you could turn that into a, a reflection as a mater- materialized view, and you know have that expensive query be be run and and be stored. As as that materialized view, and then you could access it when you wanted to. So you so you have this distinction between the the virtual data set, which doesn't cost you anything, and the reflection that is a cached, a materialized view. Is that right? That's correct. The virtual data sets are that that's that abstraction layer. That's what allows people to you know go from you know by default you connect Dremio to your, in in your environment you can get started you can do joins between you know the different physical data sets that you're connected to you know the directory of CSV files that you have or Parquet files in S3 with your Oracle table. But then the virtual data sets are the way in which the users can create new data sets that maybe have some kind of data prep, data curation done on them. Maybe they're a subset of the data. Maybe they're filtered. Maybe they're aggregated. Or maybe they're joined between two sources. But then, you know, as the, the BI user, for example, is querying these virtual data sets, uh, we want to make sure that these queries go fast. And so the way you make something go fast is by maintaining various data structures that make that go fast, right? It, it, kind of in the same way that you think of when you search the web through Google, you're getting a very fast response time. And that's because Google is not actually going in uh, scanning all the web pages on the internet when you run that search query. You know, it's because they've built indexes and, and various models that they use to support answering that query in a much faster time, right? And, you know, database indexes, you know, if you look at Oracle indexes or, or cubes in kind of the OLAP world, the, the idea is the same, right? You have data structures that make it much faster and easier to answer queries. The idea with the way that we do these data reflections, which is kind of one of the key innovations here, is that the 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 data consumer, the person who's running the queries, is not even aware of their existence, and so those are completely behind the scenes. They get managed and maintained by uh, by the system, and their queries just magically go faster than they would otherwise. So the virtual, the notion of the virtual data set, if that's the data that I already have across my organization, like a virtual data set would be an Elasticsearch index or a MySQL database. 
why is it useful to be able to have that as an abstraction in Dremio? If if the virtual dataset already exists, why is it useful to have it as something within Dremio? Yeah, so when you connect, actually, uh, let me just clarify. When you connect Dremio to an Elasticsearch cluster and, let's say, you know, your Azure Data Lake store, right, or, or your S3 bucket, we actually call those, the, the things in those systems, we call them physical data sets, and, and we actually never change them. Uh, but what happens most of the time is that people don't just want to analyze or expose the raw data in those systems. They actually want to do some additional work on that before they do their analysis. And so that additional work, just to give you some some color here, it may be as simple as, you know, I have an index uh, in Elastic or maybe I have an S3 bucket that has data about businesses. But maybe I just want to do an analysis of businesses in the U.S. And so I'll create a virtual data set on top of that kind of physical data set that has some additional filters in it. And I can do that either visually or if I know SQL, I can actually do it through SQL uh, in, in, in Dremio's interface. And so that's creating a new virtual data set. You know, another example would be if I wanted to join data between two different systems, so I could take two physical data sets, one in Oracle, one in Elasticsearch, and I could then join those two things, either visually, again, in, in our user interface or through SQL, and then save that as a new virtual data set. And so that virtual data set actually doesn't contain a copy of the data, but if I connect now uh, Tableau or Power BI or, or Looker to that, uh, to Dremio, that virtual data set appears to the BI tool just like any other table. And so they can, they, they, the BI user can then start uh, exploring and analyzing that virtual data set. How does Dremio discover the schema of my different physical data set sources? Yeah, so there's a, a lot of work goes into the both the way we connect to different data sources and understand their schemas, as well as how we deal with changes in that in that schema. And so, first of all, uh, a lot of systems have kind of self-describing data, right? If you look at say Parquet files on S3, we can interpret the schema from those Parquet files. If you look at Elasticsearch, it has something called mappings, and those determine kind of the schema. Of course, every relational database has a schema, and JSON documents are generally self-describing. That said, in, in many cases where it's not you know a simple table, maybe it's uh, you're connecting to an S3 bucket that has uh, or a directory there that has files that may have different structure in them, and so we have this kind of schema learning engine where uh, over time, as we're observing data through the execution of queries, um, we're kind of adjusting our internal understanding of what that data looks like and what that schema is, and so we have this entire kind of learning algorithm around schema. We call it schema learning engine. The uh, reflections that you talked about, this important smart caching layer that uh, makes the the queries that analysts and data scientists are going to have, it's important that this this query system is is a little bit intelligent and 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 can do things on its own rather than having the the engineers specify everything. How does Dremio figure out? which queries, which reflections to materialize into a file that will accelerate the the actual usage of Dremio? Yeah, so there, there are kind of two aspects to, to how reflections work. One of them is how to decide which reflections to create. And then the second one is when a query comes in, how do we even figure out that we can leverage one of these many reflections that you might have in, in your uh, uh, in the system, right? Uh, and actually, the, by the way, the reflections get stored in you know, something like an S3 or an Azure Data Lake Store or HDFS, uh, typically. So it's cheap. 
Very cheap. Yeah. So it's not, uh, it doesn't have to be kind of fit in memory. You don't have to have that, you know, like loads of memory in the system, which is typically where these things get uh, really expensive. So to start with, when a query comes into the system, we have kind of a sophisticated optimizer that looks at that query, compiles it into a query plan, and then basically runs a variety of algorithms to understand whether one or more reflections that are available in this kind of in the storage layer could potentially be used instead of scanning the raw data. So that's where we'll potentially rewrite the query plan internally so that, you know, instead of scanning a trillion records, maybe we only have to scan, you know, a billion records and then kind of roll that up and do some additional processing on that to return the the answer to the user, which is the exact same answer that they would have gotten if we had scanned the raw data. And so that's really the kind of the, the query substitution layer, the the reflection substitution layer where we're trying to take a, a query plan and understand whether we can accelerate it by rewriting it to use uh, reflections. The question of, well, in the first place, which reflections get created in the system? Uh, we have two things right now that, that we do, and then something more significant we're working on. And so what we have right now is, first of all, users can uh, basically vote on specific data sets in the system. So you know, if you're working with a data set, whether it's a physical data set or a virtual data set, and things are too slow, you basically have, it's almost like a Facebook like button where you kind of uh, upvote that specific data set. And then uh, kind of the administrator of the system uh, can see the, the votes and see which data sets people are uh, more excited about. And then they can kind of enable reflections on those. And then when it comes to an individual kind of data set in the system and wanting to create reflections on those, we provide some kind of basic recommendations based on things like the cardinality of different columns. There's also something we're working on now, which is more more based on kind of the user behavior. So a given amount of uh, capacity that you're willing to allocate, let's say, in your S3 kind of buckets, uh, basically a quota, uh, what uh, automatically determining based on query history what is the best bang for the buck in terms of the right reflections to create? And so that's something we're working on, basically a kind of very sophisticated machine learning engine. In addition to that, you know, well, it will always be important to give users and, and the admins of the system some uh, kind of controls around this because, you know, we have customers, to go back to your CFO example, uh, the CFO might be doing something that's uh, pretty unique. Nobody else in the company does it. So it's not very common, but because they are the CFO, they kind of expect things to be fast, right? That's they're, they're maybe more important than other people in the company, right? And so that's something that would be hard for a system to really to know, right? Maybe without connecting to their HR database. Um, so we'll, we'll still always give people the, the controls to be able to kind of even all the way to defining the manually defining reflections to create. What are the steps to executing a query against Dremio? So we expose actually, Dremio looks to external tools. Dremio appears like a relational database. And so if you connect a BI tool like uh, you know Tableau or, or Power BI to uh, Dremio, it thinks that it's connected to a relational database. And so you can just uh, kind of drag and drop things in the interface, create a new chart, create a new report uh, or a dashboard, and things will just work. And so we provide ODBC, JDBC, drivers as well as a as well as a rest interface and, and some tools just su- already support Dremio natively and you don't even need to use any of these drivers if you're more of a data science uh, type user data scientist uh, a lot of our users use Jupyter notebooks as a way to interact with with Dremio and so we have very nice integration with uh, kind of the Python stack and pandas specifically part of that comes from the fact that we created a project called Apache Arrow about a year and a half ago and Arrow 
Uh, since we kind of open sourced that and worked with the Python community, that's since kind of taken or really grown in adoption, almost 200,000 downloads a month now. And it's embedded into everything from Pandas to Spark to H2O, InfluxDB. And we're working with various different organizations and, and companies like NVIDIA, for example, on, on Arrow. And so that ability of Dremio to integrate very well, especially with the data science tools, is something that's very unique here, right? And that's why we see a lot of our users also using things like Jupyter and Pandas and the entire ecosystem on top of that. If I'm an engineer at a company like a Coca-Cola or an Airbnb or any any organization that's large enough to have a lot of engineers and multiple data scientists and multiple business analysts and disparate data sources, it would be nice to have this data tool that stretches across my entire organization and I can go into this data tool and connect data from one piece of the organization to another. Unfortunately, it's not a practical reality, not only from the engineering standpoint, but from a data governance standpoint, because there's the principle of least privilege as it applies to uh, to data. Because if you have a 10,000-person organization, you should not have access to all of the data in that organization. There's there's just, there's privacy rules, and there's, you know, it, just certain teams should not know what other teams are doing. There's you know, I think the term Chinese wall is sometimes used, at least in financial institutions, where one part of the organization can't know about data in another part of an organization. So I think that's one thing that leads to silos, but in some ways it's good that there are silos there. So if you're trying to build a tool where you can join disparate data sets, the the tool has to be compliant with those data governance walls. How do you handle that aspect of large enterprises? Yeah, I think you're hitting on something very important here, which is, you know, companies want to, uh, you know, we're offering re- really a kind of a data as a service platform, and that's because companies want to offer data as a service internally, and there is no practical way for them to to go about doing that, and so that that's kind of the fundamental problem that we solve. I think uh, a big part of this, though, is also making sure that uh, you know users or consumers of data are only allowed to see what they're supposed to see, right? And so when we connect to various data sources, first thing is we always observe the permissions of the user within that data source. So when we're talking to, you know, when we're getting data from HDFS or let's say something like a relational database, uh, we're actually... And leveraging the user's identity to make sure that we're only getting things, we're only returning things that they're allowed to see. And that actually works throughout the entire kind of caching layer as well. We always make sure that a user will never get data they're not supposed to see. But then also in, in the abstraction layer here, when it comes to these virtual data sets, we actually make it possible for companies to control who gets to see what data. And so as a data engineer, you're, you may be responsible for making sure people should only, you know, get access to what they're they're supposed to get access to. Uh, and maybe you don't want to expose the raw data that you have, let's say, in your data lake. And so uh, using Dremio, you can actually uh, control that further. And you may say, you know what, I'm not going to expose the raw, the physical data sets to anybody. I'm going to create some curated data sets that have the social security numbers stripped out of them. And I'm only going to expose that virtual data set that's maybe kind of watered down to the analysts. You know, maybe for the data scientists, I'm willing to give them a little bit more and they're allowed to see something else. And you can actually do this at the column level and, and based on the users and groups that the company has. 
But I think that the, the thing to realize here is that users will work around kind of the, the, the restrictions or the inability to, to get things, right? They, they will get their work done in many cases, and they'll work around kind of IT and the governance controls that people have in place. And so that's why we believe that the only way to get security is to provide users with a way to accomplish what they want, and, but to enable them to do that in kind of an IT governed system. And so when you're using, when you're exposing data through something like Dremio, uh, one of these data as a service platforms, then IT gets to see who's doing what with the data, who's accessing what data, you get to control what they're allowed to see, and you get to see the entire lineage of, of data. So, you know, this virtual data set, uh, it's literally, you actually see a graph where it shows, you know, a virtual data set, what its ancestors are, what their ancestors are. You can kind of browse that graph like you kind of browse a Google map, right? And so that to me is the key is uh, self-service in many ways is the is critical in order to achieve security because otherwise people are, you know, they're downloading data to, into spreadsheets, they're sending them around in emails and and downloading them and extracting them into departmental BI servers. And it just becomes a lot worse. And yet you don't actually know what people are doing with the, the data at that point. When I started Software Engineering Daily, I started going to conferences. And when I when I started going to, to these software engineering conferences, originally I, I was most interested in going to the talks. And I went to the talks and I learned about the same things that I think people who listen to the show learn about how databases work, how programming languages work, uh, software architecture strategies and things like that. Over time, I actually became more interested in the goings on in the expo hall. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you've been to enough conferences where you've been to a lot of different expo halls, but these expo halls where you have all these different companies that are presenting their products because conference goers are walking between the you know the, the the booths at the expo halls and and talking to these different products and and the products are are making their pitches and and giving their their vision of the world because this is how they this is part of the sales process of selling to the engineers selling to the CTOs selling to the CIOs and that sales process has fascinated me over time because you if you're selling a product into an enterprise, you have to know where is the entry point? Where are you getting a foothold? Where are you explaining the value? Because Dremio is not a simple product to explain. And a lot of these company, you know, companies that are selling to developers, it's often solving a very subtle problem that the, the enterprise may not even that 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 is being sold to them they may not even understand that they have so you often need to talk to the engineer specifically and say hey look you have this problem you know you have this problem and i need you to go back and talk to your ceo or talk to your cio and and sell them on this idea because it's 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 important so in building dremio what have you learned i'm sure you saw plenty of this in mapr so you already had domain expertise in this to some degree but in building dremio what have you learned about the entry point what is the way that you convince people that this is this is the approach this is how you solve some of the data engineering data science data access problems at your organization yeah you know i think the in, in most of the companies that we work with and and uh you know, we're now deployed in companies from you know everything from you know large enterprises like intel transunion royal caribbean all the way to uh, you know smaller kind of startups right 
by and large, there is an organization that's responsible for kind of the data infrastructure, for delivering data as a service within the company. Often this is kind of the data engineering team. It's the same group that's responsible for kind of the data lakes, the data warehouses, the ETL, and so forth. So I think there's a clear, for us at least, there's a clear kind of, um, let's say, buyer, right, for for the technology. that. Uh, now, we do always make sure that we're also interacting with the consumers of data, with the data scientists and the BI users, because when they see the product, they, you know, they... They really want it. And so that helps, you know, kind of internally within those companies and helps helps them understand the value proposition as well. But I think a, a big things that a big thing that we're doing and uh, different here, we're all big believers in kind of bottoms up adoption. And so if you look at uh, our executive team, you know, it's a lot of the executives from MapR and from MongoDB as well. And we very much believe in kind of the open source model. And and so we actually created Dremio as a, an open source technology. You know, we allow people to download it, kind of that, that we have a community edition they can download, run in production. And we now have uh, thousands of companies downloading that every month. And so that's been very successful. And a lot of the companies that we've went on to do business with over the last nine months uh, since we've kind of launched the product uh, have actually started by just downloading the community edition from the website. And so that's, uh, I think that makes things a lot easier. And it's also very much how people want to consume software these days. And so that's really been our approach. And it's, you know, it's been so far working out very well just in terms of the, the volume of these, uh, uh, these downloads and the wide range of customers that we've been able to acquire across, you know, every, every industry you can imagine from, you know, insurance companies to the largest tech companies to and then across, you know, every continent from you know, Australia to Singapore to, you know, different countries in Europe and, and of course, the U.S., in the last month, we've had a few recent shows about different solutions to this data sprawl that we've outlined in, in our conversation here. So we had a show about Uber that's been pretty popular. And what Uber does is at the highest level, they expose Presto, basically, which is a, a MySQL interface that translates queries into whatever kind of backing store the the data is is stored in so that's you know that's one approach we've heard and another approach is citus data which suggests if you get all of your data in postgres then you know you can you can perhaps have po- the postgres uh, extensions system take care of all the uh, variability in 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 queries, and you can have optimizations in that world. And I know these are not totally disjoint uh, approaches. And the, you know, there's there's probably companies that will have Presto and Dremio. There's companies that will have Citus Data and Dremio. There's companies that will have just uh, one of these three. There's companies that will have completely other things. But when you look at the spectrum of approaches to solving this data sprawl, what are your beliefs about how things are going to change in the future, and how do you contrast the different approaches to solving that data sprawl? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think one of the reasons we uh, we started Dremio is because we we saw that with uh, you know just SQL engines, whether it be you know Hive, kind of in the Hadoop space, or, or uh, you know Presto, etc., that wasn't enough to to really solve the the problem, right? To make users uh, self sufficient with data and to give them the performance that they want. And that may work for some very large organizations that are willing to run 
systems on you know thousands of nodes and throw hundreds of data engineers at the problem. Uh, but there are very few companies, you know, like like Uber and, and like Google that have their own kind of internal solutions that and that want to to do that. Right. If you look at what what we're saying is that uh, data as a service doing that internally is is much more than just having. Uh, a SQL interface, right? It's the ability to accelerate these queries so that the the BI user can get a sub-second response time when they do have terabytes of data. Uh, it's the ability to join data across different sources and to have a, an interface that you know looks and feels like uh, kind of Google Docs where people can collaborate and build on top of each other, right? It's the ability to visually curate data, you know, for for people that are not engineers as well, because otherwise they constantly bother the engineers. And so I think we, we look at a much more of a kind of a full stack approach, right? In many ways, you know, you could think of, you know, if you thought of the iPhone, let's say, and SLR cameras as, as competitors, right? You could think of it that way. They, they both take pictures and I'm sure uh, the iPhone has taken market share away from some of the uh, kind of the traditional camera manufacturers in the market. But, uh, but I think the value proposition is very different, right? The reason I, you know, with my kids, I, I go and, and use the, the, the smartphone to take, take pictures and videos of them is because it's then very easy for me to share on, uh, on WhatsApp and on Facebook and, and it gets backed up automatically on Google Photos and all this additional value that comes from that kind of deeply integrated system. And that's kind of how we think about solving this problem. It's, it's not enough to have uh, you know, 10 different technologies that I kind of cobble together and throw a lot of manual work at. We think the experience has to be a lot better. In many ways, you know, a little bit like, you know, if you think about what Splunk did, you know, prior to Splunk, we, you know, people wanted to analyze logs. It's not like they invented that problem, but they had to cobble together different solutions and use shell scripts and and, uh, and load logs into MySQL and all these different uh, things and a lot of work that came with that. And, you know, Splunk came and said, hey, here's a much more elegant kind of dedicated solution for this problem. And that's kind of how we think of what, uh, uh, what Dremio is doing uh, for the world of data analytics. All right. I, I know your time is short, but one other future-related question. So much like Google Docs or your camera application or Splunk for logging, these problems that from a high level may look like sh- just engineering problems that don't require machine learning. They're just kind of figuring out the building blocks and then optimizing them by hand. In 2018, we're starting to see the benefits of putting machine learning in these kinds of systems. And even for data platforms, there was that paper paper from, from Google that maybe you saw about learned database indexes outperforming these manually created database index indexes. What, what are the opportunities for machine learning in building a better, more efficient data engineering platform? You know, I think uh, I, I think it, it, there, there's a huge opportunity here because you can do so much by just understanding what people are doing and what they want to be doing, right? And that goes from everything from understanding what are the right data structures to create underneath the hood automatically without asking anybody just by observing, for example, the query patterns, right? That's why we, uh, uh, we really like our position as kind of the, the tool that sees what everybody's doing, sees all the queries that are running across all the different sources and, and being able to leverage that, understand there's a lot more we could be doing there for sure uh, with kind of leveraging that knowledge and utilizing it to make, you know, future queries go faster. And um, we, we already do things like, uh, 
recommending joins. So when you look at a, a data set in Dremio and you click the join button, we'll say, hey, you might want to join this with this other data sets. And that's that based on the behavior of other users who have joined that data set or, or maybe even something derived from that data set with other things. And so I think it's, uh, it, you know, just building a tool is not enough, right? A kind of a, a productivity tool. It's, it's uh, you really want to be able to leverage that understanding of what people are doing over time and, and also how that's changing and, and also looking at the data itself, right? A lot of the things we do is, you know, we observe the relationships within the data as we're running these various queries and joins in the system. And we can then make smarter decisions about how to accelerate things just by understanding that, you know, maybe that is a, a one-to-many relationship based on our historical kind of observations. So things things of that nature, I think, are as uh, a lot of additional opportunity here when you start thinking about, okay, I I know what people are doing with it. I know what they're accessing, how they're doing it, and so forth. All right. Well, to close off, what else are you working on at Dremio? What do you have in store for the near future? Yeah, one of the things that we'll be uh, announcing soon is uh, a, a new initiative around Apache Arrow. And so Arrow, I think I mentioned that earlier, is an open source project that we uh, created about a year and a half ago and has really taken off as, as a foundational component for dozens of different open source and commercial products out there from, you know, time series databases to GPU databases to Spark to Python and, and of course, Dremio. And so we're uh, working on a number of different new capabilities and kind of extensions of, of Arrow that will make uh, uh, Arrow-based systems anywhere from 5 to 10x faster and also provide orders of magnitude faster integration. So today the world kind of uh, systems integrate based on very old protocols like uh, and interfaces like ODBC and JDBC. And you know, for, for data science, we think there's a need for something much, much faster. So we're working with uh, Wes McKinney, who's the creator of Pandas, and really designing a next generation interface for, for data, columnar data in memory to move between systems. And so that will be something coming up in the next uh, uh, couple months. And then a lot of additional capabilities uh, also inside of our uh, our own open source platform that includes uh, kind of really advanced workload management capabilities. You know, many of our customers like TransUnion, they have hundreds of users that run on the platform and they want to very intelligently kind of prioritize the use of resources among all those different users for uh, very high concurrency levels. And so that's something uh, we call workload management um, or kind of a next generation workload management that we're, uh, we're working on. You know, the ability, for example, as data sets continue to grow in size, uh, how do you leverage both GPUs as well as kind of the available disk space that you have in a cluster so that, you know, even if you run out of memory, you can complete all your queries in a, in a kind of an efficient way. So lots of optimizations around kind of performance and, and concurrency and workload management um, in addition to what we're doing with Apache Arrow. Very cool. And I just want to conclude by, <laughs> I think I've said this before, but I think it's it's real it's impressive the three year or four year or whatever lead time between starting Dremio and getting to this point where you've got some serious customers because I I think it says something about like the delayed delayed gratification to to getting to this place where you really have good customers or I shouldn't say good customers but like really strong kind of the 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 name brands. I think it says something about the, the the vision that you had from from the beginning, and I, I'm always impressed when a company is able to take a really really long vision. And I think three years, you know, three years is not tremendously long, but it's pr- it's pretty long in in the world of software engineering tools. So I, I'm really happy to see you doing well. Yeah, thank you. It, you know, it's been very uh, very exciting. People say it, t- it takes years to build a, a database, but you know, for us to be at this point where 
you know, just seeing thousands of people download it every month. And, you know, I think uh, the last few months it's grown 30% or something like that uh, month over month. So it's, it's really, awesome. yeah, really taking off. That's some compounding. Okay. Well, Tomer, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wow.